Morning, everybody. We have been in the middle of this series using the Gospel of Luke as kind of a basis for examining the life of Christ, trying to figure out how we can look a little bit more like him as individuals, but even more in our conversation about as a, as a body, as a, an assembly, as a group of people, as a church and a faith community. And so that's what we've been that's what we've been doing. We've been talking about a lot of things. We've been talking about a way to be generous. We've been talking about a way to be a neighbor. We've been talking about a way of humility and a way of peace as we talked about unity and conflict. Uh, last week, Randy talking about a way, maybe we might call it a way of justice. Um, you probably have even better things to say about what we could call it, but that's maybe what I'll call it here. Um, and, then, and then today, I, w- I want to talk about the title for today's message a little bit later, and I want to do everything backwards. So I want to do the Luke passage at the end of this, I figure if Randy can break rules, I'm going to break rules. Um, so we're going to do we're going to do Luke at the end of our conversation today to bring it all together uh, and see it in the life of Jesus. But I want to start somewhere else, and I want to start in one of my favorite passages. It's Psalm one. It's the first Psalm, and it, it's a pretty central uh, passage. One of my favorite passages in my body of work. I use it a lot on my trips, particularly to Israel with my students and. Uh, just have a great time with this passage, but I want to I start there. Here we go, Psalm 1. I have this memorized in the NIV, but we like to use the NRSV here, so I'm going to have to read it. Uh, well, that's not the right passage. Where? There we go, they're backwards. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers, But their delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in in its season. And their leaves do not wither, and all they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now the NRSV has a subtitle for this psalm that it calls the two ways. And I love that. There are two ways. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And there's a conversation here, not much about substance. We're not really told the substance of the way of the wicked. We're just told the that the way of the wicked comes to nothing. We don't need to know what it is, apparently, in Psalm 1. We don't need to have a conversation about what it looks like. It just, the way of the wicked comes to nothing. It's fruitless. It doesn't prosper. It perishes. But the way of the righteous leads to something. Now, the way of the righteous still doesn't have a lot of substance to the conversation, but it does at least have a conversation about what what the way of the righteous isn't doing and what the way of the righteous, at least one of the things that the way of righteousness is doing. So there's a conversation about what they aren't doing and what they are doing. They are not, let's go back or forward on my, nope, it's fixed. Hold on, I gotta like, I gotta like. Okay, hold on. Okay, we're we're back. I had to like make my brain do reset, hard reset. Okay. So, so we're told that they don't walk in the way of the wicked. We're still not know what that way. We're still not told a lot about what that way is, but we're told that they avoid that. They avoid. What do they not do? They avoid the way of wickedness because it doesn't come to anything. So they avoid the way of wickedness, but we're also told that their delight is on the law of the Lord, 
and on it they meditate day and night. So we are told what they do. This reminds me, by the way, there was a biblical botanist. My teachers claimed the greatest biblical botanist of the modern era, of this last thousand years. His name is Noga Haravini, which is just a fantastic name to say. Say Noga Haravini. I told you it was fun. So Noga Haravini was a biblical botanist that taught, uh, his text was used at Hebrew University. That's the university that taught a lot of my teachers. It's kind of the land of biblical archaeology and one of the top universities over there doing work. And so that was one of the, the sources they always quoted. Now, Noga Haravini was convinced that he knew which tree someone was talking about. And he said, I know because it's very, very identical to a passage also used in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 17, which I'm not going to have on the slides, has a very similar passage that you need to look at sometime today if you have any space to sit with God and read some more text today, which by the time I'm done, hopefully you might be convicted you should do. <laughs> but but there's, there's a conversation in Jeremiah 17 about two ways. The way uh, the man who trusts in flesh, in his own might, in his own strength, and the person who trusts in God. And, and this way is depicted by two trees. Psalm 1 only seems to refer to one tree. Jeremiah 17 refers to two trees. And you'll notice in Jeremiah 17, it's almost verbatim. Not quite, but it's a very, very similar passage to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. His leaf never, never withers and everything he does perishes. Or everything he does prosper, excuse me. <laughs> Maybe I should have the slide on the screen. And, and, and the tree, it's juxtaposed against a bush in the wasteland, your English version is going to say. And your English version is going to say it's going to be the Arar bush. But cursed is the man, Jeremiah says, that trusts in flesh, in his own strength, in man's ability. He will be like an Arar, say Arar. That's the Hebrew word that's used for bush. Your translation usually just translates it as bush desert bush, but that's a particular desert bush in the Hebrew, or so said Noga Haravini. And so he said, I can tell you what these two trees are because of what Jeremiah is doing. I want to show you some pictures here. Noga Haravini said, the tree of Psalm 1 and the tree of the man who trusts in the Lord in Jeremiah 17, Noga says, is in fact the acacia tree, the desert acacia. Now, if you're like, man, that's really, our projector just really needs to be updated because that tree looks dead. No, you're right. <laughs> that tree right there is as dead as it looks on our projector. <laughs> there ain't a green leaf on that thing. I walk by this tree every trip that I lead where we head out to the desert. I probably walk past this very tree, I don't know, 10, 15 times. Um, it, it, that tree always looks like that. Always looks like that. Here's what an acacia tree looks like when it's actually in bloom. So a little bit better. There's some green on that. You can't really tell. Now it's our projector, but nevertheless. It looks a little better, yeah? These acacia trees, they grow at the end of what are called wadis. So in the desert, you have these wadis. When it rains, actually, number one killer in the desert in Israel and Palestine? Floods, which is fantastic fact to learn. Fun fact, fun useless fact for the Sunday morning. Number one killer in the Palestinian desert is flooding because when it does rain in the rainy season, the, the soil has no, it doesn't absorb, it just sends it out to the desert. You have these rushing walls of water that come through the wadis. And then they get to the end of the wadis 
and the water towards the, to, towards the Rift Valley and the Dead Sea, and the, and the river, the water just kind of goes out and settles and eventually just evaporates and somewhat, and where that water settles, that's where you find the acacia tree. You find the acacia trees largely in these places, huge groves of acacia trees where the water will hit the end of that wadi, kind of settle out, and that's where you'll see these acacia trees kind of plopped all over. Now, there are some wadis in the desert that, that get the wadi that they feed, like the wadi that comes from Bethlehem, sits right outside of Qumran. If you've ever been over to Israel, visited Qumran, that wadi connects up to the Bethlehem area. There's always rain there every single year. That wadi always floods. Every time I'm there in March, we always have to pay attention to the rain schedule because I can't get to Qumran. It's always, always, always has water in it. Most wadis in the desert don't see water every single year. In fact, they might not see water but once every decade or two. A wadi could go 10, 11, 12, 15 years without seeing a drop of water because it has to rain in just the right spot for water to get to that particular wadi. What that means is that these acacia trees will sit dead just like that for years. Like I've walked past that tree, it always looks like that. But if that wadi were to see water, it will spring to life. Now, let's not get crazy about what it means to spring to life. But you know what the Bedouins call this tree? The Bedouins in Palestine call this tree the gift of the desert. Its, its wood burns longer and hotter than any other desert timber. It's easier to work with as far as lumber, to build things with. The sap is, medicin is medicinal, so you can use it to make all kinds of the, the Bedouins use it for all kinds of stuff. The, it has a little, when it does bloom, it grows these little, like, almost like carob pods. They're only two inches long, two or three inches long. Have these little carob pods. And the Bedouins say if you boil one kilo of those pods, you can feed a camel for a week. This tree is the gift of the desert, unimpressive as it may be. The most useful desert tree that the desert, the people that live in the desert, know of. Doesn't look very impressive, does it? Doesn't look very good. You would swear that that's dead. That could be sitting like that for a decade. Rain hits and it springs to life. Jeremiah 17, this is, this is the picture of somebody who trusts in the Lord. But the person that trusts in his own flesh, in their own flesh, is like an arar bush. Let me show you an arar bush. Ah, this arar bush grows 150 yards away from the tree I just showed you. In the exact same desert, in the middle of the exact same conditions, this, it's, it's now, now again, we have projector, but that still looks good, doesn't it? Like, it's luscious, it's green, it, it just looks amazing. It's got these orange grapefruit-sized fruit on it. So you take this, you take this fruit off, so here, here's me holding one of those fruit from the arar bush. You can see in the background, I'm in the desert. Like I'm in the middle of nowhere at that same arar bush you just saw in the photo. I, I pulled off one of the fruit. You take it and you go to, you're like, oh my goodness, desert, desert glory right here. You go to peel it open and it sounds like this. And there's nothing on the inside. It's full of air and a milky substance, which is actually toxic and poisonous. 
Jeremiah, 7, Jer- Jeremiah 17 says, the one who trusts in his own strength is like an arar bush in the wasteland. They look, and what you don't see in the text is what everybody else knows in the Hebrew land. Because Jeremiah 17 is saying it looks good, doesn't it? It looks great. You're standing in the middle of the desert and you look at people and you're like, oh man, they got it all together. They're trusting in their own strength that leads to nothing. Death, emptiness, toxicity. But the one who trusts in the Lord, let's go back. Well, they can look. They can look pretty bad. They can look like they're pretty much close to death. And yet, they're the gift of the desert. So do not be deceived by looks, Jeremiah would say, as he talks about these two ways. So the psalmist, the psalmist does something very similar. Psalm 1 talks about a very similar tree. And Noga Haravini says, well, the, the tree of Psalm 1 has to be the acacia tree based on Jeremiah. So, the, so now, look at what, let, let's walk through the psalm now, now we have some desert context. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners take or sit in the seat of scoffers. So the first thing they do is they push against. Again, there's an intentionality. We talked about this the last few weeks. There's an intentionality to walking in the way of Jesus, to walking in the way of God. You're not going to stumble into it by accident. It's a narrow way. It's an intentional way. It's a way we have to set our minds to. And so we set our minds against the way of wickedness, but their delight is on the law. The Hebrew word there is Torah. Their delight is on the Torah of the Lord, the word of God, and on his Torah, they meditate day and night. Now, I know us, UCC, and we love ourselves some contemplative space, don't we? We love ourselves some meditation, some contemplative prayer. We like ourselves some spiritual direction. Megan said, amen. We love that stuff, and I absolutely love that about us. I love it. Wouldn't critique it at all. Period, end of discussion, full stop. I love it without criticism. That's not what this word is referring to. This word meditate is not the word that you think of when you think of the back patio of your house with a latte and the sunrise and your open Bible and Instagram hashtag blessed, hashtag quiet time with Jesus. I think that's awesome. The hashtag blessed, the quiet time with Jesus, your patio, the sunrise, a latte and a Bible sounds fantastic and you should do all those things. Just know that that is not what Psalm 1 is referring to. The word for meditate here is the word hagah. Say hagah. Say hagah. If you can roll your G, you've got to, I can't, I can't. I've tried a million times. I can't roll my G. If you can roll your G, you've got to roll your G. You've got to roll, that's hagah, right? Okay, I want to I give you another passage where hagah shows up. Hagah shows up again in Jeremiah. Say these words after me. As a great lion... As a hungry lion growls over its prey, though a band of shepherds be called out against it. Okay, again, do it one more time. As a great lion, as a hungry lion, hagaz over its prey. It's the same word that we translate meditate in Psalm 1. 
It's the word Hagah. Now I want to show you. Now after I just bashed Instagram, I'm going to go to Instagram right now <laughs> to give you an example of what Hagah is. Let's see if I can get the mic to pick this up. This is Hagah. This is a word, this is a case of Hebrew onomatopoeia. The word sounds like what it's describing. It's the growl and the roar of a lion hunched over it. It's not the roar, it's not the loud roar of a lion. It's the it's that, it's that growl as he tells the hyenas and the jackals, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to eat all of this. Do you hear the Hagah? Do, do you hear that in there? Okay, That's Hagah. So please realize when you go to Psalm 1, what's being said. Their delight is on the law of the Lord. On it they Hagah day and night. They sit over their text, not because it fills their soul with warmth, not because they feel God's pleasure when they do it, not because they get anything out of it, but because they believe that by investing in that way, they will walk the path of the righteous, and when God decides to send rain, they will be the gift of the desert. So I'm sure that the way of the righteous has a million things we could talk about, but the one thing that, the, the, that Psalm 1 wants to address, the one thing that Psalm 1 wants to point out that the way of righteousness does have is a commitment to the text. They, now let's keep reading. Their delight is on the law of the Lord. On his law, they meditate. I'm going to devour it. I'm going to devour it no matter how I feel, no matter my circumstances, no matter whether or not I feel like it's working or not, I hate, I despise this idea that if we don't feel God's presence, then all of a sudden there's something wrong with the discipline. Hogwash. The discipline, the faithfulness is part of what produces the fruit. The faithfulness is part of what it means to stake our belief in what God is up to in the world. And I love the conversation about authenticity, but there's also a place for authentic faithfulness. Does that make sense? Where we are committed and devoted to a space, whether I feel good about it or I like it, or this is, all right, this is the Jew in me coming out right now, okay? They are like trees planted by streams of water. The Hebrew there literally says rushing streams of water. The wadi floods. This is an acacia tree. Now listen to these words and how they change. Which yield their fruit in its season, leaves do not wither, and all they do they prosper. Those words hit different this time, don't they? Because this isn't just like, yeah, every spring it's a beautiful oak tree that bears its wonderful leaves and beautiful shade. This, this, this is talking about it can look dead for years of drought. And in the right moment, never fails to respond to the rain when it comes. And that, that context of Psalm 1 hits different to me. So now, let's go to Luke 4, because Jeremiah titled this on that wonderful spreadsheet I always reference, A Way to Resist Evil. 
So we've talked about a way of generosity, a way of being a neighbor, a way of peace, and a way to justice, and a way to all that. How about a way to resist evil? That's what Psalm 1 speaks of. This person who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, but instead walks in the way of, what does it look like to resist evil? So now let's go see what happens to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Another word for wilderness in the Hebrew? The Hebrew word is midbar. Say midbar. Midbar is also desert. Desert or wilderness. Okay? So Jesus is led out to that place I just showed you. Literally and I'm sure metaphorically. Right? Let's keep reading. For 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those 40 days, and when they were over, he was famished. That's the most Captain Obvious phrase in your New Testament. <laughs> he is in the desert wilderness. He has been fasting for 40 days. How miserable. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a charter bus waiting for him at the end of the hike. He doesn't have a camelback hydro bladder that I give all my trip participants. He doesn't have a five-star hotel or even a one-star hotel or even a bedroll with him, I would assume. How miserable, come on, Ohio, here comes July. Here's the good news. In the wilderness he's at, it's a dry heat. How miserable is Jesus? How deserty, how wildernessy. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written. What does Jesus have in him already? Text. For the moment that he needs it most, when did he have to get that text in him? Before he landed himself in the desert, Jesus had to have gotten up, as the psalm says. I would assume that Jesus embodied this and fulfilled this perfectly. Got up every single morning to let God the Father attune his ears. It's not the only way, by the way, that the Spirit of God moves. It's not the only way, but it is a main way. Paul says in Ephesians, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's not the only way the Spirit's going to work, but apparently, Old and New Testaments, it's one of the main ways that the Spirit of God wants to move is through the text. Jesus lands himself in the wilderness. He literally has to resist evil impersonated, you could say evil incarnate in the, in the, in the, in the questioning and the temptation of the devil himself, and he is armed with three words, it is written. One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written. I feel like this is a big deal for Jesus and a big deal in this story. Jesus comes prepared to be the gift of the desert because he has God, God's, God's word, day and night. 
delighted in it for this very moment. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil says, oh, you like to quote texts, do you? The devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for here, for it is written. The devil says, ah, two can play at that game. I'll talk about what's written. This is right down our alley as Western American Christians. We love proof texts. Here's the thing I believe, and here's the proof text in the parentheses. And here's the devil going, here's the thing I want you to do, and here's my proof text. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands, the devil's like, I got two proof texts for you. I'll, I'll double up. You like the Bible? I got the Bible. On their hands, they will bury you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Do any of us, I think we would assume this as students of the Bible. I'm sure we assume this. But do any of us actually know our text well enough to realize how the devil is misquoting, distorting, and misapplying those texts? And I know that the answer to that is no, because the answer is no for me. I don't know that text well enough that the devil is quoting. I can assume he's probably, it's the devil, so I'm sure he's abusing scripture. Yeah, 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 but Christians abuse scripture all the time. See, see you have to actually be this person who hagaz, and please don't hear this being a conversation about quantity. This isn't a conversation about quantity. It's always a conversation about quality. It's not about how much text you can memorize or how long you've been doing this or I'm 66 years old and why would I start now? Because it's always about quality because the Holy Spirit has this thing about taking quality and doing something quantitative with it. That's the Holy Spirit's job, not our job. Our job is to be faithful with the thing that he's handed us. So it's not about how many verses and how much and how much time or any of that. It's about whether or not we delight in the law of the gourd. Delight, delight on the gourd. Sorry, English. Whether or not we, I don't even know what I was saying. That was so weird. It's, so it's not about whether or not we delight in the law of the Lord. It's about, it's about whether, excuse me, I'm all messed up. Let's go back to the text. <laughs> Jesus answered him, it is said. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And what did he quote more of? He quotes more text. Text to talk against misquoted text. Jesus comes prepared with scriptures. What can we learn about the life of Jesus when it comes to the way, a way to resist evil? How can we resist evil? Well, we can be somebody who does not walk in the way of sinners or sit in the place of scoffers or stand in the place of mockers, but we can delight in the law of the Lord and see what, I, what just frustrates me to no end about this is we live in a Christian world where one side of a conversation are the Bible people, right? And then the other side of the conversation is like, well, we're the love people, so don't throw the Bible at me. And I hate that. I hate that there's one side of a conversation where they kind of get, like they get to, like that, the conversation of the Bible is so much bigger and wider than one side of the conversation wants to make it about. But the other kind of the conversation just kind of jettisons it. It's just kind of like, well, we'll just be about love because that was the point of the Bible anyway. Rather than digging further into the scripture to show why Jesus didn't forsake the word just because he was about love. He went further into the word to show why that's what the word was all about to begin with. 
I love that about this ultra-fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical church that raised me. They taught me that the Bible was so blasted important. Because it is. And they were right about that, 110%. Can't figure out why they landed on where they landed on everything else they did with the Bible. But that Bible is important. And for all of us that would, and I'm not critiquing you, chuckle at that as we all did and I did too. Make sure that on the same time, our reaction is not, well, we're going to get rid of the word of God. Ah, who cares? Ah, the text. Ah, proof texting. Ah, ancient old book. This ancient old book is still the same book that breathes life into dead places. It is still the same book that the Holy Spirit wants to use as its sword, metaphorically speaking, to do work in the world. And how will we resist evil? By making sure that those words are inside of us, that they can come out of us when the time is right. My last favorite passage I'll quote here, Isaiah 50, 55, I've probably quoted it a million times here already. As the rain and the snow falls from the heavens and does not return to it without watering the earth, causing it to bud and to flourish, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so my word goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will always accomplish the purpose and the desire for which it was sent. God's words from Isaiah. His words always accomplish their purpose. His words have a way of doing things that our words, our beautiful theology, our wonderful rightness, and all of its rightness, when it's, when it's simply sitting in our words, it has an impotency that his words don't have. So will we have his words in us? A way to resist evil. Let's pray. God, would you uh, inspire us today through your own life and your trial and temptation um, to be people committed to the text, committed to the word, committed to, would we, would we take delight in your Torah, your law, your words, both covenants, both testaments, the whole thing, would we, would we delight in it? Would we Hagah it? Would we sit over it, crouched, hunched over it, telling all of Satan's minions that would want to pull us away, I'm, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat all of this as an act of sacred, holy rebellion to the way of wickedness. Because I know that there's going to come a point where I'm going to need this text. Whether it's what you're going to do silently inside of me or what I'm going to do as it comes out of me through the power of your Holy Spirit or whatever that's going to look like, we know that there's coming a day and a time where we're going to need it. And so would you inspire us to make that psalm something true in our life? God, would you um, protect us, uh, keep away any of the weird, stupid voices that show up that talk about how I've got to memorize more. This is about more. It's about quantity. It's about all the ways that I fall short. It's about me not knowing how to memorize scripture. It's about all these things that come flooding into our mind. Would you, would you shield us from any, golly, any triggering trauma that we've endured growing up where we were just slammed over the head with a Bible and told a million times 
just all kinds of things, and somehow we attach that to your word. Would you allow us to reclaim that? Redeem it? Would you clean that up as you see fit in our lives? Um, God, just keep all, the, keep all the garbage out and just call us to this qualitative, beautiful space where we commit your words we haggah them, we, we, we growl over them, we devour them, and we sit and we meditate and we drink a cup of coffee too. God, would you make all of these things true so that when the time comes, in our deserts or out of our deserts, but when the time comes, we would bear fruit. We would be like a tree planted by streams of water, never fails to bear fruit and its leaf never withers. Jesus, we love you. And uh, allow us to love you back in the way that we look like you in your pursuit of your, of your word. Teach us, Jesus. Pray all this in your name. Amen.